Research Podcast, a production of the Communication Research Center at Boston University. This podcast is a recording of the colloquium presentation by Professor T. Barton Carter, entitled, Who is Safe in This Harbor? Rethinking Section 230 of the Communication Decency Act. Thank you. I'm actually shocked that anybody's here given the weather. So, uh, thank you all. Actually, I'm shocked I'm here. I almost, on the way in, said, ah, heck with this, started walking around the river. But, uh, in any event, uh, what I'm going to be talking about today is safe harbors. Now, safe harbors are, in law, areas where people can't be sued successfully. And that protection is supposed to encourage them to do different things. And specifically, I'll be talking about the safe harbor created by Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. Now, a little background. My research interests have always focused on the interaction between communication law and new communication technologies. Uh, This encompasses everything from regulation to interpretation to the First Amendment. A couple of quick examples. Traditional defamation law separated libel, which is written, from slander, which is oral, and treated libel a lot more seriously because it was capable of more damage. It was more permanent. It was also capable of much wider distribution, which was great until somebody came along with broadcasting. (laughs) Whoops. So what do we do? Well, in technology, you make quick changes and everything's fine. In law, we fumble around for about 30 years. Um, Here, what happened was some states kept the distinction. They just couldn't figure anything out. Others differentiated based on whether or not there was a script. There was a script, it was written. Uh, Some redefined broadcasting as libel, and still others invented a new category called defamacats. Okay? Yeah, scary. Bottom line, as you can see, law doesn't adjust well to new technology, or very quickly. Uh, It can also affect First Amendment applications. Earlier this year, the Supreme Court heard arguments in Fox Television. Uh, This involves whether you can say certain word, the F word, for example, on radio and television between 6 a.m. and 10 p.m. Okay? Now, back in the 70s, in a case some of you may have heard of, the Civica case involving Carlin's seven words, you can't say. The Supreme Court said that the law was fine, that you could restrict it, even though that same law applied to any other medium would be unconstitutional under the First Amendment. They based it on the grounds that broadcasting was uniquely accessible and uniquely pervasive, uniquely accessible to children, uniquely pervasive. Okay? How many of you think that broadcasting is uniquely accessible to children and uniquely pervasive to them? How many think it's been that way for a long time? This is not cable. Cable is separate. We're talking about just broadcast over the air. 85 to 90% of all people get their video programming from cable or satellite. Hard to argue that the broadcast is uniquely accessible. These days, how many kids are on the internet? How many on their, you know, have their iPhones at age eight and already able to get on the internet to find this stuff? So we'll find out if the law finally adjusts uh, or not in that case. Now, here's the real problem. New technology moves a little faster than the law. Now, I know that most of these sessions have empirical research, and I didn't want all you numbers people to totally have withdrawal, so I put up two graphs just for <laughs> Okay? This is the rate of change of the technology. This is the rate of change of the law. The little bumps are things like the Copyright Act of 76, Telecommunications Act of 96, 
Digital Millennium Copyright Act in 2000. You know there's a problem, okay? Well, <clears throat> guess what happens when the internet comes along? Now the problem is magnified, you know, 20 to fold at a minimum. So, several years ago, I started looking at how internet developments affected um, defamation law. And I proposed some changes with regard to defamation. More recently, I sort of revisited that to see whether my proposals still have make any sense at all, assuming they ever did, and whether they could be extended to other areas. So, let's start with defamation. In assessing when any, whether any law is constitutional under the First Amendment, one has to consider not only whether the law regulates speech, but whether the law might deter, or we love to say law, chill speech. Okay? That was the basis of the Supreme Court's decision in Times versus Sullivan, where there was an attempt to balance the state's interest in protecting the reputation of its citizens with the First Amendment interest in a robust, free debate over public issues. Concerned that defamation law was stifling this speech, Supreme Court made it more difficult for public officials to sue by requiring them to prove something called actual malice. Subsequently, in a case called Gertz versus Robert Welch, that was extended to public figures, and even private individuals now had to prove negligence. Okay? The advent of the internet, however, raised new questions regarding the chilling effect of defamation law, as well as privacy law, restrictions on indecent material, etc. Here, the concern was not one of chilling specific content, but rather the development of new services. Okay. One of the strengths of the internet is that it allows individuals to communicate with a worldwide audience at minimal cost. However, if ISPs and websites that carry these messages could be held legally responsible for the content, there would be a strong incentive to limit those messages. With traditional media, liability for other people's content, or in the modern parlance, use of generated content, was determined by distinguishing publishers from distributors. Those who actively choose content, newspapers, broadcasters, were viewed as publishers, and thus liable. Passive distributors like news vendors, bookstores, libraries, were not responsible unless they could be shown to have specific knowledge of the content. Early cases involving interactive computer services apply this traditional distinction. One involved CompuServe, another involved Prodigy. CompuServe was held not liable for defamatory statements because they didn't edit. They didn't choose, they just let stuff go up there passively. Prodigy, however, had advertised how they were trying to protect people and that they actually monitored things and looked for stuff. So the court said, fine, you are liable, okay? Now, the implication of those cases was that exercising any editorial control over content posted on a site would make the website operator, or ISP, a publisher, and thereby responsible for all the content. The phrase that's often used is, you edit it, you own it, okay? And that's a problem, because that left two ways to avoid liability. One, you had to review every single thing going on your site, okay? Now, the other alternative, don't exercise any control whatsoever, all right? What's the problem? Well, the first is the obvious chilling effect on the development of interactive computer services, okay? Anyone wishing to exercise any editorial control would have to severely limit whatever went on the website, because you can only review and edit so much at a time, okay? On the other hand, if you didn't exercise any editorial control, then you couldn't take down even the most objectionable content that happened to show up there. And the government really didn't want to, you know, deter people from removing bad stuff. Now, originally they were mostly concerned with indecency, but they went on to other things. So Congress 
passed Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, found that the Internet had flourished to the benefit of all Americans with a minimum of government regulation, and that to preserve that vibrant, competitive free market, they had to protect it. So, in addition to preventing the specter of tort and her criminal liability from chilling Internet speech, 230 was also intended to encourage operators to remove objectionable content. In other words, go ahead and edit, and the fact that you've edited some won't make you liable for what you missed. Okay? And essentially gave them absolute immunity. Unless they're the content creator, or the editing creates the problem, then they're not liable. How would the editing create the problem? Well, if I sent in a sentence that said, Chris Daly is not a thief, and they edit out the word not, <laughs> they've lost their immunity for some reason. What if it's happening? And they damn well should. <laughs> okay. And Martin, I'm sorry, what year was this, the, the decency act? It was, it was passed in 96. Okay. Now, since it was enacted, courts have continually interpreted interactive computer service very broadly, so it applies to websites as well as ISPs. Now, not all objectionable material is covered by 230. There's an exception for intellectual property. That's not covered. However, intellectual property, various aspects of it are covered by other safe harbors. Copyright by the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. And you can even guess roughly when that was. Okay. Now, how does it differ? DMCA says you have immunity, but if somebody notifies you you've got copyright infringing material and you don't take it down, you no longer have immunity. Okay? There's still another one for trademark law where there's immunity for paid advertising content to publishers and distributors. Uh, the remedies enforceable against them are limited to injunctions against future publication. Okay. There are even things that may not have a safe harbor. A form of invasion of privacy called right of publicity has been viewed as being intellectual property, but there's no immunity provision in any of them that covers it. So that's the one where there's probably absolute liability. In the 16 years since the passage of the CDA, as you know, the internet's grown exponentially. Um, many new services not even envisioned at that time have become commonplace. Things like YouTube, okay, social networking services like Facebook, okay, or this gives you an idea of why law doesn't progress with the technology. I was at a communication law conference. I overheard a couple of lawyers as they were walking out going, What's this my face stuff anyway? <laughs> <laughs> These are the people deciding how you're going to regulate it <laughs> or protect it? <laughs> Woo! Okay. Uh, there are even multiplayer games like World of Warcraft and so on. Now, bottom line is, even though there may have been other factors, Section 230 clearly seems to have worked in this sense to the point where internet access is viewed as phone service was at one time, a universal right. Okay. However, it's come with a cost. There are individual citizens who've suffered great harm resulting from material posted on the internet who have found themselves without recourse. Um, I'll give you an example. Zarin versus America Online. A message was posted on an AOL bulletin board advertising naughty Oklahoma t-shirts. The shirts featured defensive slogans referring to the Oklahoma City bombing. Okay. The ad directed people to call Ken and gave a phone number. The phone number turned out to be Ken Saren's phone number at his home in Seattle. Okay. The person who posted it was never identified. <coughs> After receiving a large number of abusive phone calls, including death threats, Zarin contacted AOL and asked them to remove it. Although they refused, um, his 
request to have a retraction posted, they eventually did remove it. Then it was posted again on Portland Board. Situation was exacerbated a week later when an announcer for an Oklahoma City radio station read it on the air and suggested that the good citizens tell Kim what they thought of it. Want to imagine what his phone messages were like at that point? It was only after the radio station apologized on air and an Oklahoma City uh, newspaper ran a story on the hoax that the call volume decreased. He sued AOL, but guess what? They had 230 immunity. Okay? He didn't know who posted the hoax ad, so that left him where? No remedy whatsoever. Similarly, Christiane Carafano, an actress who used the stage name Chase Masterson, found herself in a problem when someone created a fake profile for her on a dating service. Said she was looking for a hard, dominant man with a strong sexual appetite. <laughs> and she liked sort of being controlled by a man in and out of bed. Emailing an address supplied an automatic reply containing Carafano's phone address and phone number. The profile was promptly removed by the service when she notified them, but by that time she received numerous obscene phone calls, letters, as well as highly threatening sexually explicit facts that also threatened her son. She sued Metrosplash, that's the company that put up the profile, and although originally the lower court said because they had a questionnaire up there that made them a content creator, when the appellate court looked at it, they said, no, nope. you know, they didn't supply the material, they just supplied the means to put the material up there. They were not a content creator. And so once again, she basically had no remedy. Okay. Now, another social networking site case, auto-admit. This was a discussion for potential lawsuits or people in lawsuits. <coughs> Various anonymous posters apparently didn't like two law students at Yale and posted false claims for one or both, including being infected with STDs, drug use, bribing Yale officials to gain admission, forming a lesbian relationship with a Yale administrator. They also were posted things, rape, threats of rape were posted, and messages urging readers to contact potential employers with the various allegations that have been posted. I'd like to be one of those two. Uh, again, lawsuit, auto-admit is immune. This had a little happy ending. They were able to get a subpoena for the identity of some of the posters, and apparently they were able to subsequently settle it. But in the meantime, they'd lost jobs, needless a lot of distress, very bad situation. And then finally, just briefly, I assume some of you are familiar with JuicyCampus.com. Okay. This was a site that encouraged people to post things about their classmates, other students at the university. And you could go to a different university and see what they had at each one. And you also got to vote on whether it was juicy or not. Basically, it was bathroom stall walls posted to the internet. The majority of postings were not actionable, but there were some that were clearly defamatory, including accusations of rape, sexual deviancy, drug use, and alcoholism, to mention a few. Okay? Now, this one's worse in a way because, for a couple of one, who actively told them they were going to be anonymous. It promised to protect their anonymity, thus encouraging the worst sort of stuff. In addition, whereas the other sites served legitimate purposes, discussion of events or, let's face it, matchmaking services are fairly popular, etc. This, the whole purpose of this was just to put this kind of junk out there. Okay? Um, but, it essentially gave blanket immunity to anybody who wanted to post it because they know that they can't be sued because it's going to be anonymous. Which, let's face it, lots of people will post things when they know they can't be identified. 
that they wouldn't even think about if they thought they could. So, it would appear that the balance between protecting the websites and protecting individuals has gone a little too far. The question is, what can you do about it? Now, the first question that comes is, do you set up a single solution for all content? Covering copyright, trademark, everything else, or do you have to come up with different ones for different types of content, which is sort of what they've done now, to some degree. A lot of people have argued that the best solution is a single one-size-fits-all. Uh, for example, as a prelude to his proposal to replace safe harbor provisions with a single model of trademark law, Professor Stanford Law Professor Mark Lemley presented four major reasons for this. First, the absence of any safe harbor for IP infringement other than copyright and trademark creates a hole in the safe harbors, exposing internet intermediaries to risk of liability. For example, right of publicity. Second, complexity of safe harbors confuses people, leading them to either believe they are protected when they aren't, or to be worried they aren't when they are. Okay. Third, that the scope of the intellectual property exception to 230 is unclear, leading again to the right of publicity problem. And finally, that different protections could lead to litigation abuses. abuses. In other words, I might characterize something that I think is defamatory as copyright. Why? Because then I can get notice and takedown, whereas if it's defamation, I can't do anything. Okay? So, Apparently, pretty persuasive arguments, if you think about it. But you know I'm going to say no, but I wouldn't present it that way. <laughs> they take, fail to take into account three major issues. First, the distinction between the types of harm that can result from different content. Copyright infringement, what's the basic harm? It's economic. Somebody else gets the money instead of you. Okay? However, it's unlikely to cause reputational harm or emotional distress the way privacy defamation can do. Go over to indecency and those kinds of things. Now we're talking about protection of children. Still a whole different kettle of fish. The second major issue is how different types of content are treated under the First Amendment. Okay. Conflicts between copyright law and the First Amendment are basically seen as solved by a simple solution. The expression of the idea is protected by copyright. The idea is protected by the First Amendment. So the First Amendment interest is satisfied because the ideas get out. The economic interests of copyright are satisfied because they can't steal your expression of it. Okay? What that means, among other things, is that an injunction in copyright law is just another remedy. It's viewed as the same as anything else. However, in other areas of speech, an injunction is the most serious First Amendment violation known to man. And they're very rarely granted. They're called gag orders, prior restraints, all kinds of nasty things. And even where you can get other remedies, you cannot get that. So that's a distinction. Okay. Now, First Amendment analysis under defamation is different in other ways. Defamation is protected to some degree now by the First Amendment, even defamatory speech, which copyright infringement it's not. And if you go over to indecency law, now you've got still a totally different set of First Amendment analyses, including broadcasting versus other things. In addition, there's the availability of technological solutions. For example, Google is using filtering technology now to try and detect copyright infringement on YouTube. In decency cases, one of the big arguments all along has been, well, but you can use filtering. 
which is a lot less restrictive on the First Amendment than prohibiting the speech or getting sued or whatever. There's no filter for defamation or privacy, and nobody has yet envisioned even how you could possibly do it. It's too contextual. It involves knowing who it's about as well as just the content that's on the screen. So it's simply not a viable option. That doesn't mean that some solutions to the problem might not be appropriate for all. But one should not start with the assumption that one size does fit all. Now, before turning to my proposal, I'd like to briefly look at possible other solutions. Uh, Professor Lemling, when he was looking at it, thought of four. One, eliminate safe harbors entirely. Well, that certainly would protect people a whole lot more. But what would that do to the content on the web? Can you imagine Google having to determine if all the videos posted are defamatory or invade privacy? How would they do it? I mean, it just logistically doesn't work. The second was to extend the absolute immunity of Section 230 over to other areas. Well, that doesn't solve our problem at all. We've already said it doesn't work where it does. So extending it isn't going to improve the map. Okay. Third, go the other way. Extend notice and takedown from DMCA to everything. So when it's defamatory, I send you a notice. You have to take it down or you lose your immunity. The problem here is that the effect of notice and takedown in copyright infringement has already been shown to establish a really strong heckler's veto. Now, what do I mean by that? I'm a website. I get a notice. It says notice and takedown or you could lose your memory. How much do I have invested in having that thing up there? Not much. So regardless of whether really copyright infringement or anything, I'm going to take it down. There's a famous case there. Anybody ever see the Prince song, the baby video, Dancing to Prince? It was posted on YouTube. Okay. You know, what was it? Uh, Let's go crazy. It was like a one and a half year old dancing around the kitchen. Prince, or at that time he might have been the artist formerly known as Prince, or maybe it was the artist formerly known as the artist formerly known as Prince. No, no, I can't keep track of it. In any event, his record company sent a notice and takedown letter. Now, the reality is, that's a fair use. There is no question, any copyright lawyer in the country would tell you that what that was was not copyright infringement. But it was easier for the website just to take it down. Well, think about how much you could do to limit speech by simply sending Notice and takedown letters. Okay? So, what are we going to do? As a matter of fact, it would be really bad because the use of litigation to silence people in defamation areas, etc., is well established. We even have a name for it Strategic Litigation Against Public Participation. Slap suits. That has even led to anti slap laws. So, we certainly don't want to extend that. Finally, Professor Lemley, Lemley favored an approach based on trademark law. Basically, complete immunity from damage liability, and plaintiffs could go get an injunction removing the offensive content. Well, uh, the best feature of his proposal as applied to defamation was the requirement that the website identify the original posters of the actionable uh, material so that the plaintiffs could take legal action against them. However, the rest of it doesn't work very well. First of all, the lengthy period between getting the injunction, you know, the original posting and the injunction, the damage is done. Your reputation is shot. There's an old saying, the truth never catches up with a lie, etc., etc. Second, as I've already mentioned, injunctions are prior restraint. The odds of being able to get one in this context are minimal at best. Okay. So, let me suggest the following. A modified 
version of the required identification portion of his proposal, as well as a right of reply. What do I mean? Okay. Well, he's certainly correct in stating one of the key problems with the current system is it encourages anonymous speech. Um, that's not to say, however, see, this always gets more complicated. That's not to say anonymous speech doesn't sometimes have a very good purpose. And the Supreme Court, in fact, has ruled that in some anonymous speech, the anonymity is protected. Okay, as they stated, anonymous pamphlets, leaflets, brochures, and even books have played an important role in the progress of mankind. Recognize the importance of anonymous speech, political speech, they've protected it. Regulations that restrict anonymity are unconstitutional unless they are narrowly tailored to serve an overriding state interest. So just allowing you to have it is not good. Okay? We have other doctrines based on that. Reporter's privilege is based on the idea that protecting the anonymity of some people is important. On the other hand, it's hard to equate the defamatory material in Zarin, Carafano, Auto-Admit, or Juicy Campus with either of those examples. Um, so as long as the regulation is narrowly tailored to serve the overriding state interest, it should survive constitutional scrutiny. So, restricting the ability to post anonymous defamatory statements would serve two uh, state interests. First, provide a legal remedy for the publisher, for the defamed individuals. Right now, Section 230 has created a very big catch-22. You can identify the one you can't sue, and you can sue the one you can't identify. Well, when you think about that, it's not very useful. It doesn't help, okay? Now, the ability to identify and sue them, unfortunately, still has limited value. First, money can't restore a damaged reputation. Second, because the constitutional protection mentioned earlier, even falsely defamed people often don't win. Third, the internet has drastically changed the key dynamic. It used to be the only people who really harm your reputation by defaming you generally were newspapers, broadcasters, book publishers. What do they all have in common to some degree? fair amount of money, which meant when you sued, you could actually get something. Now, you know, the proverbial blogger in the pajamas in the basement can do just as much damage utilizing the internet. Then you sue them, what are you going to get? Um, there, there's an old saying about people being judgment-proof. What that means is you get a judgment, it's a nice piece of paper, you can now frame it and put it on your wall because they got no money. And one always wants to sue those who got the most money. Okay. Now, far more important, however, of this identification would be the deterrent effect. Posters who know that they can be identified and sued for their statements are far less likely to post actionable statements. Now you lose some of that courage when you might actually have to account for yourself. So it might actually deter some of this action. That was one of the biggest problems with Juicy Campus, is it basically encouraged it in that fashion. So the key is to find a way to limit anonymous defamatory speech while at the same time protecting other anonymous speech. Okay. There are two parts to this. First, those granted 230 immunity must be required to obtain identifying information. If they don't, you can insist on it all you want, but it isn't going to do you much good. And retain that information for a reasonable period of time. Now, how do you do that? Well, you simply condition the immunity on obtaining the information. If you made no attempt to get the identifying information in the first place, well, it's yours. Okay. Now, that isn't going to guarantee it, because we all know there are ways to maintain anonymity and look like they've got your identity when they don't. 
but it would certainly cut down on it heavily. The more difficult question, when and under what circumstances would an allegedly defamed individual be able to obtain that identity? If it's too easy to compel disclosure, there's the danger that speakers who are entitled to anonymity would lose it. And on the other hand, if it's too difficult, then provision has no value. Given the First Amendment interest at stake, at a minimum, the lawsuit has to be filed, defamation suit, before you get a subpoena for the identity. Once the subpoena is issued, the anonymous poster should be notified and given the chance to contest the subpoena, including offering proof of any defenses or privileges that would preclude a verdict for the plaintiff. The plaintiff can't win, shouldn't get the identity. Now, if contested, the plaintiff should be forced to demonstrate a likelihood of winning on the merits before disclosure of the defendant poster's identity would be compelled. In other words, you'd have to show a prima facie case. You'd have to show that you know there's no defenses or others that would preclude your winning. Um, some courts confronted with defamation suits against anonymous defendants have in fact imposed variations of this. Others, however, simply said, file a suit, you get the identity, which is a real problem. Um, I would suggest that an approach taken like in Dendrite versus Doe, a New Jersey case, um, the test they used was pretty good. They had to first, okay, have the plaintiffs we're required to make an effort to notify the defendants, including posting, we're suing you on the same board where the defamatory statements were. Okay. Identify the specific statements that you claim are defamatory. Then, the judge would have to find that there was a prima facie case and the strength of that case and necessity for disclosure outweighed any First Amendment rights. At that point, you'd be able to get it. Part of the advantage of this, too, is that the mere threat of litigation costs would serve as a significant deterrent to defamatory postings. So even if you don't end up with the lawsuits, if we can chill, this is the kind of speech we want to chill, let's, let's chill it out. Now, this part of the proposal would be appropriate for privacy and other things as well. I mean, have the same basic effect and hopefully the same results. There's another way, however, to reduce the harm, at least in some cases. One of the classic First Amendment aphorisms is, the remedy for speech is more speech. In this context, more speech would come in the form of a right of reply. Specifically, upon receiving a complaint that an allegatory, allegedly oops, defamatory statement had been posted, a website operator would be required to post a response from the individual uh, who claimed to have been defamed. Okay. The response would have to appear in the same screen with the original statement so that anyone viewing the original statement would be exposed to the response as well. Much better than, by the way, than writing a reply in newspapers and so on. Whenever you, how often the people who see the correction are the ones who saw the original? You know, that's always been a fallacy in traditional sense. Failure to comply uh, you lose the immunity. Now, given that some defamed individuals might conclude a reply was ineffective and prefer original post be removed, that could be an option too. The difference here would be that they both have to agree to it as a substitute. Because on the one hand, you don't want the website operator by themselves to be able to skip out by doing it. And on the other hand, you don't want the first party trying to use it again as a heckler's veto much more to get stuff off that might be legitimate in one way or another. Okay. From the standpoint of the defamed individual, this remedy has several advantages. Let's face it, the primary concern of a defamed individual is what? Restoring their reputation or minimizing the harm. Traditional solution has been to sue, theory being the lawsuit accomplishes two things. 
undoing the harm through a court determination that the statement was false, and providing compensation for the harm suffered. Unfortunately, there are problems with that traditional solution. To erase or overcome the harm done, the court finding have to be disseminated to all those who saw the original. Never happens. Not even close. Second, the rebuttal of the Tanaf statement must appear soon after the first appearance. A couple of years later. And guess what? How many lawsuits end in only a couple of years? Law does not move quickly. Third, assessing harm to reputation and determining adequate compensation is difficult. I mean, how much is your reputation worth? Can you give me a dollar figure? And can we then calculate how much it was reduced by the defamatory statement? You know, last year my reputation, you know, it was gold standard. It was worth at least a million dollars. Now it's, you know, not over 400,000. You know, it's done worse than the stock market. So, I, you can't do that. Fourth, when there's recovery, it's not until years after the original. And, of course, in the traditional, the way the law is right now, you often have no way to sue because of the immunity. In contrast, a reply could be posted immediately, giving a chance to minimize the harm. Note, in the Zarin case, when they finally, the newspaper carried the story that it was a hoax, and the radio station apologized, the phone call stopped, or they drastically reduced. Okay? Now, also you could surmise that if the information had been available sooner, the radio station announcer wouldn't have compounded the problem by getting on the air and doing what they did the week after the original. Linking the reply, obviously make sure that the same people, not the same people, anybody new seeing the bad statement will see the new and thus immediately have a chance to, as well as any individual who returns that page. Obviously the effectiveness would, would vary from case to case. In Carafano's case, oh, it would have done a lot of good. But Zarin, he probably would have. Another advantage of right replies is it posts minimal cost on the website. I mean, let's face it these days. How much does it cost to put the reply on there? Cost on the website. I mean, let's face it these days. How much does it cost to put the reply on there? Well, it's not like you've got to publish a whole other paper. So, finally, Compared to any remedy that focuses on removing the defamatory state material, it reduces the opportunity for heckless veto, which we want to try and get rid of. Okay. Now, that leaves one last major question. Is it constitutional? Always a problem in the First Amendment. And there are a couple of previous right-of-reply cases that have gotten to the Supreme Court. Okay. One, Red Lion versus the FCC. And the other, Miami Herald versus Trinial. First one dealt with the statute involving broadcasting, the second one, newspaper. Okay? It was upheld and held constitutional in the broadcasting case, not in the newspaper case. So let's look at them. Well, one of the problems here is that they holding stand for a basic premise, which is that different media have different First Amendment rights. Okay. Broadcasters, long known, they got the fewest of all. Okay. But what about the internet? Where would it fall in this magic pantheon? Well, when faced with applying the First Amendment to the internet, the Supreme Court has rejected the broadcast model. So we don't even need to discuss it. Doesn't work. They won't buy it. That sort of looks bad because Miami Herald said it was unconstitutional. And if the newspaper model approaches, you've got a problem. However, what was it based on? Well, they held it was penalizing newspapers for printing certain content. The first phase, the penalty resulted from the compelling fellow printing the reply in terms of cost and printing, imposing time and materials, and most importantly, taking up space that could be devoted to something else. They reasoned that would have a huge chilling effect. You might not put something in there for fear you'd have to give away space in your newspaper. 
The second reason was that it intruded too far into the function of editors. Editing is for editors, not for courts. Generally a good idea. Okay. Now, very different if you apply it to the internet. See, I can now state this is what lawyers always like. We distinguish the case. Yeah. We don't have to reject it, we just distinguish it. Okay, first, the cost of posting the reply is negligible. You don't have to drop anything else to add it on. Okay, so minimal cost, no chilling in terms of, oops, I'd have to leave something out. As far as the editing, intrusion into editorial process, the whole problem here is they're not editing. How can you be intruding on an editorial process that didn't exist in the first place? They didn't decide whether or not it should be up there. So you're not intruding into the editorial process in the same way at all. Okay. Now, right of reply in the defamation area, having come back and looked at it for you, still makes sense. Things haven't changed since I first you know, started thinking about this. If anything, Section 230 is just as bad as ever. Uh, people can still be hammered in very bad ways. What about applying it to other types of actions, such as privacy, um, decency, obscenity, and all, all things? By the way, they might, primarily, they were originally mostly concerned about indecency when they passed 230. The rest of it's all collateral damage in some way. Well, first of all, one branch of invasion of privacy, it could work the same. That's called false light invasion of privacy, and it looks a lot like defamation, so the solution would be very similar. Okay. Now, in the rest of privacy, however, the right of reply part is, if anything, probably counterproductive. It just gives it more publicity, makes it wider spread, etc. But the restriction on anonymity would be very useful, even in the privacy area to the extent it would deter, and to the extent it would at least give you some sort of cause of action. Now, what about allowing for injunctive relief in privacy? All right, let's get it off, let's remove it. Well, they actually like this in Europe, okay? They've started the raw, there, there are some laws already and a lot of proposals for what they call the right to be forgotten. Okay. And even, they're now even trying in Spain to apply it to searches. The reason being there's this case where there's a campground where there's this huge horrific fire. So whenever you're searching for an idyllic campground, the first three items that come up are pictures of charred bodies, etc. You can imagine it doesn't do much for their business. So they're trying to force Google to not have those come up in their search. However, in this country, there's this pesky First Amendment again, and that's a prior restraint with a very strong you know, presumption against it, a heavy burden, and in fact, the Supreme Court has yet to uphold injunctive relief in privacy. So, not going to work. Okay. The other reality is, let's face it, once it's on the net, you can't get it off. It's been copied over, by you're just chasing around, filing injunctions for the rest of your life, which um, doesn't do much for it anyway. What about indecency? Well, the solution here is real simple, and again, ironic. The indecency portions of the Communications Decency Act were struck down as unconstitutional. So it's constitutionally protected, so you can't do anything about it anyway. Obscenity poses no problem for a different reason. It's not protected by the First Amendment. So you can enjoin it, you can do anything to it. You can prosecute anybody for it. It's just not a lot. Okay, so where are we? 16 years after 230 was passed, it's become apparent that with regard to the protection afforded website operators in the context of defamation and privacy law, the balance between free speech and protecting individuals 
reputations, and so on, was set too far in favor of free speech. And that, that pains me in a way, because I'm one of the biggest believers in free speech. Possible. But I think they sort of got the pendulum a little too far to one end here. Okay. Currently, injured individuals too often face the untenable position of the only people they can identify they can't sue, therefore having no remedy whatsoever. So, my suggestion is first, we require website operators who want immunity to obtain identifying information, retain it for a period of time, and that they can be accessed with appropriate safeguards in the case of actionable material. In the case of defamation, the right of reply would be an additional benefit that might solve the problem at low cost to everybody and even to some degree to a large degree keeping the courts out. And if you're not paying the lawyers, right off the bat everybody's ahead of the game. And with privacy, I would argue the anonymity part works, but there's unfortunately not a lot else you can do. That's it. Thank you. This has been a communication research podcast, a production of the Communication Research Center at Boston University. For more information about the Communication Research Center, please go to www.bu.edu slash com slash crc. Thank you. Thank you.